Today, we continue our study of the little five-chapter book of First John. But this week, we are literally just going to look at one verse. I believe every single person who claims Jesus as Lord and Savior, anyone who wants to associate themselves in any way with Christianity, okay, whoever claims in any way to be a follower of Jesus needs to be informed and educated by what is contained in this one verse. I think it contains something that is central to our faith, that it it explains so much. This one verse is simultaneously enlightening, directing, and confronting. This one verse teaches us as Christians what our target is, what we're aiming for. It instructs us on how to approach and study Scripture. That is, it tells us what we go to Scripture in order to get, which we all need to know if we're going to use the Bible for what God designed it to be used for. It explains to us how to behave in every single relationship that we've ever had, that we have now, and that we will ever have. It gives us direction for every problem that will ever come our way. This verse describes to us what God is trying to accomplish in us and what he wants from us. Anytime you do anything Christian, worship, prayer, fasting, service, Christian fellowship, like we'll have next week, serving, caring for people, everything you do that you would do in the name of Christ, what God's trying to accomplish is outlined in this verse. Those who do not believe in the gospel, okay, that is that you do not gain your salvation by earning it, by being good enough, hate this verse. They hate this verse. This verse condemns them to hell unarguably, they say. Because they don't come into this verse preloaded with the overarching major theme of the Bible, and that's the gospel. But for those who do believe in the gospel of grace, this verse is clarifying to them. It clarifies the glorious work that they get to do for the rest of their life. It clarifies to them, okay, great, I'm forgiven, and I didn't earn it, that's awesome. Now what? This verse tells those people who believe in the gospel what they get to do for the rest of their lives. This one verse, we'll read it quickly, but we'll pursue it joyously if you hear it right. We'll pursue it if we're Christian for the rest of our lives. This one verse, I've told you and, and Dole teach you on this too. I've told you each week that First John's one of my favorite books. And one of the reasons because it contains my life verse. Life verse, what do I mean? I just mean a verse that at one point in my life jumped off the page and captured me and has never let me go. A verse that I can pour my whole life into and never finish obeying and following. And it never finishes serving me and guiding me and directing me and instructing me on how to live my life if I want to please God. It's this verse. You ready? Here it is. It's verse John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. All that in there? 
Yes. So I want, I want to do this. I've told you I'm going to be doing a little bit more of this as we move. I want this to be, and John wants this to be experiential. So I'm trying to think of ways, even from this setting, to give you some experiences. So I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to do another visualization here with me. I got this from, I was inspired by Max Lucado in his book called Just Like Jesus. So I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine that just for one day, Jesus became you. That he wakes up one day in your body, in your bed. He lives in your house. He assumes your life. Your boss is his boss. Your mom is his mom. Your pains are his pains. Nothing changes except that he's living your life for you for that one day. Your health doesn't change. Your family situation doesn't change. Your financial situation, your circumstances, nothing changes except for that one 24-hour period, his character will direct your behavior. His priorities will govern your decisions. His mission will drive your actions. His attitude towards anything and everything in your life resides in Just picture that. What would you be like? Would people, your people, notice a change? Your family, your coworkers, your friends, your enemies, those you don't particularly like that much, the less fortunate on that day, would they notice a change? Those, if it was today, would those sitting on the pew with you right now, would they notice a change? And what about you? You're going around with Jesus who is in you living that day. Do you notice a change? How would you feel? Would it be different? Your stress level? Your mood swings? Your temper? Would you sleep better that day? Would you exercise that day? Would you see nature differently that day? Would you see other drivers on the road differently that day? Would your worship be different? If he had that one day to occupy your body and your life, would would he change your plans now that he has the reins for that day, for that 24 hours? Would your schedule change? since he's there for the next week, for your next year, would your life plan change if he just had one day to evaluate it? What if your heart got the day off and your life were led by the heart of Jesus Christ? Okay, you can open your eyes. So whatever image you can muster from that little imaginary trip take a snapshot of it take that picture go buy the most expensive most noticeable frame and put this picture in it hang it in the most prominent unforgettable place of your life stare at it obsess about it because that is what God wants for you 
Because that is what God is after. According to this verse. That is what he wants for you and from you. If you're a member here, I hope, if you're a guest, welcome. If you're a member here, I hope you're committing to memory our statement that we've captured most recently that explains why we exist as a people and what we're trying to do and be about our vision statement. The Southwest Church exists in order to love first, become like Jesus, and advance his mission. It is not an accident that smack dab in the middle of that, the middle phrase of the three we've chosen, the central thing of our identity is the central thing of God's heart for us as Christians. And that is to be like Jesus. And truth be told, those other two things wouldn't be on there if they weren't descriptors of Jesus too. We love first because Jesus loved first. We advance his mission because he advances his mission. This is central. It is all about, and you hear me say it in the shorthand all the time, it is all about life in and like Jesus, this Christian thing. And the and is important. Because this verse, John says, you cannot have the in without the like. That if you are in Christ, the evidence of that is that you are like Christ. Not perfectly. That's why I'm saying. I'd have to guard you from yourself and your misconstrued understanding. If you don't believe in the gospel, this is horrible news. But if you understand that you're forgiven, then you can embrace this as a charge, as a life verse. And a life-giving verse, not a condemning one. And it's not just John in this one little phrase in 1 John where we see this. If it is as central, if being like Christ is as central to the heart of God as I claim, then you're going to see it all over Scripture, starting with Jesus himself. And I could go on and on, but I'll just give you this glimpse. Jesus says in John 13, he says it as overtly as he can. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I could, I could pick 20 verses where Jesus says something like this. He is not a signpost to the truth. He is a mold. He's a mold that's trying to shape us into truer. And Paul took him seriously in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I love when he says this. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Another one I re- relate to you often. But look at that. Paul is following the example of Christ and he's calling his readers to follow his example in following the example of Christ. It is about becoming like him. Jesus said it. John gets it. Paul gets it. And Peter got it. In his little five-chapter book of 1 Peter, he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Why? That you would follow in his steps. When we say follow Jesus, that's not an agreement with a belief that he's the son of God. It includes that. But it is a followership. It's an activity. If he is the son of God, you're not going to, You're not going to miss out on wherever he goes and whatever he does. You're going to follow him. Back to Paul in Ephesians, he says it like this. You were taught to put on the new self. You were created to be like God. Most Christians I know are not comfortable with this vocabulary Paul uses. Nothing could be more condemning of me if I am required to be like God. 
Because I look in the mirror. That's all I got to do. And this verse condemns me. But he's suggesting that God made me this way. He created me to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And this like God, it's just synonymous with like Christ. Because Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. That's why he came down here. To show us what it would look like to be like God on the earth in human flesh. This was God's epic plan from the beginning and our shortcomings and failings does not seem to hinder him telling us so. In Romans, Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to go to heaven. Is that what it says? No. It says he predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of his son. They all get it. Paul, John, Peter, they got it from Jesus. I could go on and on. But it's John that most clearly explains that this living like Jesus is the litmus test that we can use to evaluate if we're living in Jesus. When we're looking in that mirror, of course, all of sin and false short of the glory of God. He's not saying, and nor is he implying, you got to be perfectly like Jesus in order to get to heaven. I hope I don't have to say that again. But I will, if you need me to. He's talking about the aim, the guide, where you're headed to, the transformation that happens when you follow him. You become like him. And as you become like him, you start believing that you're in him. It's like the proof. It goes beyond just academic belief. It starts moving 12 inches into your heart and you start living in confidence like you're like him. There's a connection here. First John 2, I said one verse, but if you go back to the half verse before, just the half of verse 5, he says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. This is how you know. This is how you know and how you can feel confident. Because there's parts of you that used to be there that aren't there anymore. And there's things you used to not do that you do now. Is there more? Yeah. But this is how I know that I'm on this journey. This is how I know I'm in Christ because the Holy Spirit has come in and I'm being transformed. And this clearly matters. If Scripture's right, this matters. What you're like matters. Not just what you believe, what, you, what you're like. John makes it clear there's a vast difference here. If there's one, I have 20 sermons that I can preach from this. I won't do all 20 today. But he makes it clear that he, there's a vast difference between saying and doing, right? Four t- as a matter of fact, four times in the verses we've covered already in this, before we get to chapter two, verse six, four times he's talked about this audience that he's writing to and their claims. You claim to have fellowship with him. You claim to live in the light. You claim to know him, but they don't do any of that. And here he says, you, you claim to live in him. What does that mean? I don't know what it means unless it means there are people out there that he's writing to that profess to be Christians that don't want Christ's life. Shudder. You can shudder now. There are people out there who want the perks of the title of Jesus follower, but do not want the life of following Jesus. 
He's calling him out five times. He says, if you claim, if you claim, if you claim. We need to evaluate this. They needed to evaluate this. He had good news for them if they're in that audience. But if they're in that audience, they need to know it. And we need to know it because living like Christ matters. It matters, first of all, to you. Like, if when you transform right before your eyes, I... Not only is it the best possible life available to you, okay? Like, that should be enough. But there's this other little perk that John talks about. Confidence builds up. You start lifting your head. You start walking through this life confident. I can't think of anything more unlike Christ, if I look at him as a human being, than walking on eggshells, scared. Scared if God loves me. I wonder if I've done enough. I'm scared if I'm going to heaven. Christ walked confidently. And we're supposed to walk like him. And there is something about subscribing to the idea that I'm letting go of sin and letting Christ's life come and replace it. I'm letting go of my agenda and letting Christ's agenda take over that builds confidence in you. It's in 1 John 4, where he says this, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Not only will you have confidence in this life, you'll have confidence when you die. Now, where does it come from? He says, because in this world, we're like him. Not because I've subscribed to an academic belief of good news that I subscribe to and I believe it. The confidence comes by putting this into practice. So I thought of an example of this uh, this week. So when I was young, I decided to play soccer. And I started playing soccer and I didn't know what I was doing. I was getting out on the field, but I didn't know what I was doing. So when you don't know what you're doing, you're, you, you're made you know, one of the far right or left fullbacks where you just got to run and kick the ball out, you know, so they don't score on you. But over time, it took years, but at some point, you play as much as I did, eventually the ball's going to go off your foot and into the goal. And I remember my first goal. I mean, I was just, I mean, if you saw my face, I'd be like, and everyone's celebrating and celebrating my kid that the friends are coming, give me, I'm like, I just didn't know what to do. I scored a goal. I scored a goal. I can't believe I scored a goal. And then, you know, because I had no confidence that I would ever score a goal. That's for the good kids on the team. That's for Kenneth. Kenneth scored all the goals. A few games later, I scored another goal. The very next game, I scored another goal. And something happened. I don't know how to explain it. Something happened inside of me where I started believing I can score goals. Like, I can score goals. I'm just telling you, can you feel me here? I got on the field of play differently after this. And before long, Dad made every game. But when I came home, it became normal. Because I remember my first time I got a hat trick. I didn't know what a hat trick was. That's three goals in one game. And I, so the question became, when I got home from my mom, not did you score? It was what? How many did you score? And if I answered with less than two, she saw the disappointment on my face. It had changed. How did I get confident that I could score goals? By scoring goals. How do you get confident that you can live like Christ? By living like Christ. The more the Holy Spirit takes ground in your life, you stop just being on the field of play, hoping you survive and kick the ball. And you start being a master on that field of play. This is your game. This game was Jesus' game. He owned this place, and his people do too. Confidence comes, not just in life, 
but in death. And I'm tired of meeting folks on their deathbed who wonder if they've done enough and they're scared. It matters to you. And it doesn't just matter to you, it matters to others. It matters to others what you're like. Colossians 4 says that Christians are to be wise in the way they act toward outsiders. We're supposed to be wise in the way we act towards them so that we can make the most of every opportunity. Kingdom opportunity. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that our daily life should win the respect of outsiders. It matters what we're like. It matters what we do. Too many Christians excuse what they do as being okay, and here's why. That's not what drives us. Love drives us. Warren Wiersbe, he's one of the guys that I'm reviewing his, his commentaries on this book as I'm walking through it with you. He tells the story of an angry church member complaining to his preacher, why do you keep preaching to us about sin? He says, after all, sin in the life of a Christian is different than sin in the life of an unsaved person. And this preacher, knowing exactly what this guy was saying, said, you're right, it's worse. It's worse because we're the ones. Unaddressed, unconfronted sin, rationalized sin, reveals a disbelief in the power of God. I, I, you know, I'm glad I'm saved because I just can't defeat this sin. Or worse, you know, I think I can get away with this sin because, I mean, I've got grace. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. John's already addressed it. It matters. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it like this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside God will judge those outside. And this in a day and age where I see tons of Christian judging our citizen neighbors by the standards of Christ when they don't subscribe to it. And we just, we'll just, we will go to town saying they should. But right in here, these are the ones that we can hold to the standard of Christ. Starting right here, this is the one I should be holding to the standard of Christ with joy because we're on the inside. God judges those outside. So it matters to you how you live. It matters to others what they see and how useful we are in being a blessing to them, a light in the world, which Jesus calls us. And it matters to God. And that should be the beginning and end of it for those of us that love God and follow Jesus after what he's done for us. It matters to him. It matters to him what you're like. Why does it matter to him? That's simple because John says this later too in the book. Because he is love. And if he loves you, church, then he wants desperately for you to have the best possible life. He made you, and he knows what it is. And he wants you to have it. And that's the life that's like Christ. He loves you. That's why it matters to him. And if he loves the world, which he does, and if his desire is that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life, which it is, then it matters to him because he loves the world. What you're like matters to him because he loves the world. If you look like everyone else in the world, you are very little use to him in being a light in that world. It's good for you. It's good for the world. He loves you. He loves the world. That's why what you're like matters to God. 
Jesus says, this is another one of those epic statements I find myself repeating a lot. In Luke 6, 40, he says, everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So I, I, I quote that a lot to make a lot of different points, but I never take the time to stop and just ask you this. Who's your teacher? Who's teaching you? Because whoever, and the answer to that is whoever you're, fo- whatever or whoever you're focused on, that is what or who is teaching you, and that's what you're becoming like. So if the 24-hour news cycle is what you're focused on, then the 24-hour news cycle is who is teaching you and you are becoming like the 24-hour news cycle. That's what you get passionate about. That's what you talk about when you have elective conversations. That's what matters to you. It's what you you get passionate about. You get as passionate as a 24-hour news cycle because that's who's teaching you. You become like your teacher if, if, if what you're focused on is Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and all that, then whatever you're focused on in those, that's who or what is teaching you. And you're becoming like them. We're really rigged for this, to become what we follow. To become what we focus on. So a book I read many years ago by a guy named Neil Cole, and it was all about this discipleship, Christ-likeness thing. He made this observation that scientists have discovered there's this, this thing out in the world. It's called imprinting, okay, in, in the natural world, I should say. It's a chemical process, most obvious in the brains of birds. So we're literally talking about bird brains now, okay? So we're talking about these bird brains, and it's most noticeable in geese, Okay, that what happens is upon hatching, the first moving object that a, that a baby goose, which I think is a gosling, is, looks at, it imprints on that as its mom. Okay, so that, that happens. And that's, God has designed them in such a way, so, in that way, so that they form this strong bond with this mom and the, the babies can follow her and be protected by her and be guided by her, nourished and trained on how to be a good goose. So there, the, the problem is, I say problem, that the reality is goslings can imprint on anything as its mom. So the first thing it sees, and there was a whole movie on this. I don't know how many of you saw Fly Away Home. Long time. You saw it? Okay. Some of y'all remember this. And there was this girl who the, the, found this dead mother goose and, and found the nest and it's unhatched eggs. And they hatch and they see her first. And so they imprint on her as the mom, which they made this whole cute little movie about it. And they followed her wherever she went. And it worked fine. She'd feed them and train them. But until, until they needed to do through things like fly, you know, fly in formation, fly south for the winter. There's just limits that what this teacher can teach these geese in order to be good geese, they had imprinted on the wrong teacher. And so they were limited in being what God had designed them to be. What have you imprinted on? What or who have you imprinted on? Let me ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and make your move. They're going to be around the room just in case you want to process any of this or pray about any of this or talk about any of this. But what are you imprinted on? Who are you imprinted on? Because here's the deal. If you're a Christian, then if you are imprinted on anything other than Jesus, it's the wrong thing. And that's your problem. Whatever problem you're dealing with, this is the source of it. Whatever issue you're struggling with, this is the source. You're imprinting 
on the wrong teacher. And it's hindering you from being what God created you to be. So here's my call for today. It's to imprint on Jesus. We're not geese. We don't just wake up and imprint on the first thing we see. No, we might do that. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to intentionally decide to imprint on Jesus. And Hebrews 3 tells us how to do it. It says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. How, how much of your thought life in a given 24-hour period is on Jesus? Any? It needs to be focused on Jesus. How do you do that, man? Bro, bro, dust this off and pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read it. That's the story of Jesus. If, if that is getting old, then pick somebody who's done that. Who's re- I mentioned Max Lucado's book, Just Like Jesus. That's a clue. If you see a title named Just Like Jesus, it's a clue that it might be a great way to go about it. If you're into old monastic devotional literature, Thomas Akempis has a book called The Imitation of Jesus. Philip Yancey, if you want a little sidewinder job on Christians to consider parts of Jesus you haven't, Philip Yancey has one called The Jesus I Never Knew. There's lots of ways. Whatever humble way you decide, it'll be a humble way to get to know, to focus on Jesus, to fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's what you need to do. That's the call of today. If you're not a Christian today, if you're my call for you, I could not be more loving to you than to call you to fix your thoughts on and follow Jesus. If you are a Christian, you know what I want you to do? I want you to fix your thoughts on and follow Jesus. It's the answer to everything. It's the answer to everything. And that's what he wants. And then... When you do that, when, not if, when you focus on Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes in and transforms you, you and you are amazed. On that day, when that happens, you go, I'm different. I'm starting to look at Jesus and see myself there. You'll never do it perfectly. That's why grace is so important. But in ever-increasing measure for the rest of your life, you are going to look more and more like him. And not only will you live in confidence, and it'll build your confidence, and you'll start getting on the playing field like you own the place, you will also realize that that little fantasy visualization I did at the beginning where I had you imagine Jesus is in you, and he's living from within you, you'll find out that's not fantasy at all. It's not a visualization. I got that from Scripture. Jesus himself said, John 14, 20, on that day, you will realize I'm in my father, you are in me, and I am in you. See, to be like Jesus, you don't even have to be like Jesus. You just have to surrender to him. And Jesus, who is very good at being Jesus, will be Jesus in you. It's not about trying. That'll just make you tired. It's about surrendering. It's about surrendering to the best possible life. And that Holy Spirit of Christ will change you to be like Christ. And we're all here to help each other do that. Whether you need Christ for the first time 
or you need Christ-likeness to grow and you're struggling with your belief, we want you to come to us. Let's pray with you. Walk with you in this journey that we're on to. Let's stand and let's sing. Please come.